That's one where I have definitely lost the argument. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, last week we talked about words that people would like to see banished. And a few weeks ago, we were talking about words used in the election cycle, some of the words that uh, the media used and other people used to apply to political campaigns. And then had an email recently from one of our listeners who mentioned a couple of other terms that uh, – now, he didn't say that they were particularly irksome, but he wondered about the use of them and how widely used they were. Uh, these are words that people use to describe or used to portray political campaigns. One of them was the word optics, right. which has popped up recently. I think it's fairly recent usage. Have you noticed this? Optics in a campaign? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's all over the place. And it just means appearances or, or um, visible things. If you're um, going to Hiroshima to uh, make a talk deploring the use of nuclear weapons, you don't want to appear as if you're apologizing. And so you have to consider the optics of the situation. And I think what's annoying about that term is optics has a particularly good technical meaning in the study of things having to do with light. Mm -hmm. It's making something which is really pretty vulgar, <laughs> uh, that is calculatedly making yourself look more appealing than you would be if you just acted naturally and using a term which has to do with objective study of the way things actually look. Um, I guess that's what bothers me about it. But, yeah, it's used by commentators, by uh, people who are consultants to politicians, and so I don't think the general public uses it particularly, but it certainly turns up a lot in discussions of the campaigns. It is pundit speech. I hadn't really thought too much about it, although I had heard it. I was aware of the use before I got the correspondence from our listener, but I hadn't really focused in on it too much, but there I was the very next day uh, in a public space where they had CNN playing, and almost instantly I heard one of the pundits talk about the optics of a campaign or the optics of an appearance by a politician or something like that. It's just got to do with the way things look, the appearance of it. And it's almost always divorced from the reality. Yeah, I mean, you could talk about the tone of a campaign, and that would overlap somewhat, but the word tone doesn't imply that you're deliberately trying to put on a show which is deceptive or exaggerated in some way, whereas optics does. And it also overlaps with something that we've talked about before on this podcast is using terms that have good use in science and just... Uh, chiseling away at their usefulness there because optics relates to uh what is it infra or the light spectrum or well i can have a lot of different uses but yeah the way light behaves yeah the way light behaves um 
it's got it's very useful in science to delineate it from other areas, but in politics and discussing campaigns, it just seems to be really pretty well bastardized when it's used that way. And another one that was uh, mentioned was the word calculus, political calculus, another math term here. But uh, when it's used applied to political campaigns, it's once again, it's elevating it to a level that it might not or maybe shouldn't be elevated to. Well, I think it isn't really mean the same thing as taking the, the level of mathematics that are called calculus. It just means doing the math <laughs> you know, or having a calculating attitude or calculating the possibilities or being a calculating man. Um, those are very old terms. I mean, there's nothing new or particularly confined to politics about it. So um, using the word calculus, however, instead of calculating, maybe a bit of a neologism, but it's a little pretentious. Yeah, taking the word calculus when the word calculation might work and calculation being much more common coin um, maybe seems too pedestrian for the pundits to use. So it's always political calculus. Um, taking those two terms, optics and calculus, made me think of a couple of other ones that go back a little ways where especially President Clinton, I think, was applied to him when he was known for his triangulation. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that? Yes. Uh-huh. And that always seemed like a curious use to me. To triangulate means to divide things up into triangles. Well, also, you can triangulate, I believe, in trying to like uh, estimate the height of something. Um, I think it's a formal mathematical geometric procedure. And I guess it just means to arrange things so that they'll work the way you want them to. Um, it's, you know, kind of pretentious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess it's got a metaphorical use. It makes the calculations of politicians seem more sophisticated and profound than they are. Well, that's the thing. What I'm noticing here in some of these terms is a need to make it look like this is a science or this is somehow a highly technical uh, endeavor that the common person could never enter politics because they don't know how to do calculus and they don't know anything about optics and they don't know about triangulation. Uh, it's really, really sophisticated technical stuff here. When in fact, uh, is just like a, a lot of other endeavors, it's an art and a science to it. Yeah. And I think it really downplays the part of it that's more the artsy side, I guess, which people tend to not respect as much. Uh, the other one was, let's see, triangulate, and then uh, one that Donald Rumsfeld was particularly known for was using the word metrics. Oh, yeah. You need to understand the metrics of the situation. Yeah, the optics is the way it looks, and the metrics is the numbers. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so that's a fancy way of saying uh, my poll tells me that uh, this policy is favorably received by the public, so the metrics are good. Mm-hmm. Of course, Rumsfeld was not at the height of his political career. He was not an elected office. Right. He was he was an appointed defense secretary, and he was using the word metrics to make it sound as if he there were really really well defined calculations that were mysterious would be mysterious to us that were all figured out and that would help us trying to to win in Iraq. That was mainly what I remember that for. 
when in fact, uh, I think there's just a whole lot of flying. <laughs> it's just, it's not wanting to admit that you're flying by the seat of your pants, I think. Right. Well, these are words that have irked people and annoyed people. And last week we talked about the Lake Superior State University list that they collect every year of words that people want to banish. Um, there's another endeavor by another school, Wayne State University, collects lists of words that they would like to see brought back in or used more widely. Some of them are almost seem to be collected because they're difficult to pronounce. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's one of the criteria or not, but I noticed going down their list that uh, one of the things that makes these words maybe less popular than they might otherwise be is that they don't necessarily lend themselves, they don't wrap around the tongue too well. For example, um, last year they came up the word of squatulate. You know, rather than a spelling bee, I think we need a pronunciation bee where you spell the word out and then you say, guess how this word is pronounced. Yeah, but it's also such an obscure word. I wonder how much that has ever been used. I don't think that was ever a popular word. (laughs) Well, what does it mean? It means to discreetly leave a gathering without telling the host. It actually has. uh, Everybody's done this. You've done it. You've obsquatulated, have you not? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but <laughs> you didn't know there was a word for it <laughs> i bet somebody just made that up and it got one or two uses and you know, i think somebody's just having fun there yeah okay so squatulate might be somebody's kind of half made up word they're trying to popularize you think yeah. mm-hmm. well it makes me think of the word um defenestrate but i don't see defenestrate on the list from wayne state university but meaning to throw out a window to throw out a window yeah Usually, throw a person out the window. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, obsquatulate, defenestrate, they have a similar kind of tone to them, I think. Well, it's sort of charming and funny and odd, and, and I don't think worthy of wider use. It's just, how about this one? It's like something you put up on Facebook and say, isn't this weird? This is good for a laugh. Well, there are some other ones that are a little more understandable and a little more common than that, but not necessarily used very widely. Well, the first one on the list caught my eye. That's abominable. Of course, these are in alphabetical order. But, yeah. Um, and I'm not sure that abominable needs to be used any more than it is. It is kind of hard to pronounce abominable. Mm-hmm. Um, it can get mixed up with abdominal, <laughs> mm-hmm. which people do sometimes get those two crosses. And the other, only other common use for it is the uh, abominable snowman. Uh, which is usually now just called the Yeti. I think people understand what a Yeti is now, and abominable snowman is just funny. I mean, people use it just because it's amusing to say, well, this is really a horrible creature, but he's use a very old-fashioned word to describe how horrible it is. It's abominable. Abominable is, it's a good word. It's not terribly obscure. And when you come across it, There is something kind of nice about it, but it's not something that you need to figure out how to work into your vocabulary every day. Abomination is more common by far. Yes, yes. Um, Speaking of words that are just kind of fun to say, or but understandable too, how about the word befuddle, uh, to confuse, to perplex or bewilder, how they define it? Yeah. 
You know, a lot of times I think these words are just words that become a little outdated that people haven't used a lot lately. But yeah, to be befuddled, it's a nice word. It's it sort of suggests and it's feeling the way it sounds that uh, you're muddled <laughs> and confused and so on. But it has a particular meaning for me and other fans of the classic comic strip Little Nemo which appeared starting in 1905 and was a huge innovation in the uh, American comic strip history. And the author, Windsor McKay, who drew the strip and, and wrote it, was very taken by amusement park funhouses and an awful lot of the surreal adventures that Little Nemo takes part in take place in funhouse settings. And there's one in which the whole room begins to rotate and all kinds of strange things happen and they find themselves being very small and then very big and the area that they're in is known as befuddle hall oh uh-huh well no i wouldn't understand that reference per se but i just do enjoy the word because as you say it has a kind of a the meaning suggests itself just by the way it's pronounced and spelled <laughs> the way it looks sort of a self-defining term the one that I do like in the bees here is bloviate. <laughs> sure. <laughs> a bloviating fraud. <laughs> yeah, and it's most often used of columnists referring to politicians they don't like. They <laughs> are speaking pompously or in a boastful manner is bloviating. Um, and I don't know how many people know what it means, but yeah, that one sounds really nice to me. Sure. To bloviate as a verb is to uh, speak fraudulently or um, to speak at length in a pompous or boastful manner is how they define it. So, yeah, that's another nice expression of bloviating fraud I've seen uh, somewhat recently. <laughs> Just above that on the list of bibulous, excessively fond of drinking alcohol, there are so many terms for alcoholics and drinking and drunks and being drunk and so on. I mean, it's a huge category. I don't know that we really need bibulous. It's sort of pretentious. It's Latin-based. It's, I think, used in a time when people were being very timid about referring crassly to alcohol and drinking, sort of pre-prohibition era. Um, so I think you'd sound excessively dainty and just old-fashioned and prissy to say <laughs> somebody was bibulous. Nobody would know what you meant right offhand. They'd have to go look it up, and then when they looked it up, they'd be disappointed because there are so many other words that mean the same thing that are perfectly fine. Also in the bees is another one that gets a lot of use around where I live, and that's Bumbershoot. Yeah, because there's a festival in Seattle, Bumbershoot. Right. Bumbershoot is an umbrella or a parasol. And uh, there's no use for it really anymore. We have the words umbrella and parasol. We can use those. We don't need the term bumbershoot. It marks you as definitely old-fashioned, except it's used sort of tongue-in-cheek um, for this huge music festival that takes place every year at the Seattle Center, which is sometimes rained out. In fact, the one and only time we went, we sat in a downpour to hear a saxophone player outdoors. Um, and Seattle, of course, gets a lot of joshing for its rainy weather. And so there's this sort of a tongue-in-cheek allusion to that. But um, 
other than that, I don't think Bumbershoot needs a lot of encouragement. No, and this one probably doesn't need much encouragement either, but just to not leave the bees quite yet, you can see that I'm fond of the terms that sound like what they mean. Which I'm looking at the word brouhaha. It's an uproar, hubbub. Okay, you can pull that one out from time to time. Yeah, it's not as obscure as some of the others. No, no. I'm also inclined to go towards the ones that are not quite as obscure, but it's a fun list because it's a mix of ones that are known to me and ones that are, hmm, that's pretty, pretty darn obscure. When I go down the list, um, I come across one that actually shows up in your book. When you discuss it in Common Errors in English Usage, you contrast it with the word enormous. That's the word enormity. That's one where I have definitely lost the argument. It was used originally, the enormity of something was enormously horrible, something, uh, a really awful thing that happened. You'd say that this was an enormity. But um, it was learned enough so it never really passed into truly popular usage. And the word has enormous built into it. And it, it was magnetically drawn in that direction. And so now the enormity of the proposal doesn't mean the awfulness of the proposal. It means the hugeness and complexity of the proposal, the enormousness of it. The only reason it's good to know the distinction is that so when you're running into people and in writing usually who use the older meaning of it, you know that's an alternative and you can't quite make sense of something. Um, the enormity of the crime uh, caused the jury to condemn him to death didn't mean that it was an enormous crime. It meant it was an awful crime. And uh, just so you can be sensitive enough to know, it did have this older meaning and still occasionally does. So it's good to be aware of it. So when you encounter it in that other usage, you're not confused. But it's interesting to me to note that on the word list itself, the definition is heinous, horrible or monstrous in quality or character, extremely wicked, has nothing to do with the size of the situation. So what they're suggesting is that we need to bring back the word in its original meaning too late <laughs> okay you can't do it right. that place is already occupied all right lost cause um yeah some of these obscure some not so obscure eviscerate once again i don't think anybody underuses that word and it's also pretty common pretty well known yeah you know i was thinking when you're doing it you eviscerate somebody when somebody does it to you you're gutted Aha, <laughs> uh <-huh>, I see. <laughs> so you're going back to the origin. Is right. It means disembowel. Right. Right. Okay. Fulsome is one that also turns up in the book, I think. Yes. Yeah. Um, and originally that meant uh, excessively, offensively flattery somebody or trying to ingratiate somebody. A fulsome praise with, you know, somebody really going over the top in a way that's annoying and embarrassing and exaggerated. And now it just means very full. Mm -hmm. And people would say, you know, he gave fulsome praise to the concert. You don't think he's being exaggerating. You think he's just enthusiastic. So it's another case where the word has morphed in its meaning, but if you found it in a sentence where somebody's using it in an obviously negative way, you might be confused unless you knew the history of the word. So it's it's good to know 
what it originally meant. Some of these I'm surprised to see on the list. Uh, one of them is Fantods. Yeah, <laughs> that's so antique. <laughs> now, I don't even know it outside of uh, Huckleberry Finn. Exactly. I mean, this was popularized by Mark Twain. Yeah. But do yeah. you know, does it move outside of Twain? Is it? I, Not to my knowledge, I certainly. Nobody would know what you were talking about. You say, it gives me the Fantods. I mean, we have a perfectly good word, the creeps. <laughs> it gives me the creeps, yeah. <laughs> I think you would only use it extremely jokingly if, and, and then only to somebody who at least understood that you were talking about something that was antique, archaic, and probably limited <laughs> to Twain. <laughs> I don't know. It surprised me to see that one on there. Uh, Jim Crack is an interesting one. I've never known how to say it. It's, it's flimsy or poorly made, but deceptively attractive. They say, well, I always thought it was gimcrack, but I never heard anybody say it. So they say it's gimcrack. Yeah, gimcrack. That's one that I've heard. Now we're on opposite ends. The gimcrack was one that I had heard, but never seen spelled out. Now that I see it spelled out, I'm surprised to see it. it's a G. It's a soft G that starts it off and not... A J, so it's spelled G-I-M-C-R-A-C-K, and it just means so flimsy or poorly made, but deceptively attractive. So something is Jerry built. <laughs> Jerry and Jim are friends. I think. Yeah, a friend of mine from Kentucky used that expression, Jim Crack. Uh, we had uh, had an apartment that was filled with all kinds of Jim Cracks. I mean, it had all the latest electronic gadgetry. You know, haberdasher. Is on this list. The only time I ever encounter a haberdasher, I think, is every time somebody starts talking about Harry Truman. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> he ran a haberdashery shop before he became a politician. A uh, dealer in men's clothing. And men's clothing stores are so rare now. Usually in a department store, there's this little tiny section that's men's clothing. <laughs> well, originally it was men's clothing. And then it became a seller of hats, and then then it got spread back again to other items of clothing sold by somebody that had men's wear. So it's, it's kind of fluctuated in its meaning over the years. Oh, okay. For me to limit it to strictly to thinking of hats is, is not necessarily correct. No, no. Well, all right. So I learned something there. Um, once again, some of these are... Good for the pronunciation test. Um, this one's not so difficult or so rare, but uh, it is good to remember the word ignominious, I think. Shameful. Yeah. Disgraceful. Uh, it's a pretty useful one. Uh, that reminds me of notorious, which gets used positively quite a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Yes. I don't know if the notorious B.I.G., what kind of effect he had on things. But um, it's good to know that in formal writing and in most older writing, notorious means famous in a bad way. Mm -hmm. Whereas ignominious does not have any other possible connotation, does it? And that's not so much evil as shameful. Yeah, it's just shameful. Embarrassing. Yeah, yeah indubitable that's one that i think is used just to make fun of people who like to use it when you'd say sure or doubtless if you say indubitable 
You're being really pretentious and snooty. Yeah, and isn't there a possibly a, uh, one of the characters, was it one of Jack Benny's sidekicks who would use the word indubitably? Maybe not. Maybe I'm thinking of some other character. But it seems to me that indubitably was associated with some some old-fashioned character, one or the other. Frank Nelson on the Jack Benny show used to play this character who was uh, often a floor walker, but he could pop in all kinds of contexts. And he was, uh, Jack would address him and say, yes, <laughs> it would be really annoying. Yes. Yes. And uh example is given here on the web is Jack says, look, well, I have to change trains. And the clerk says, indubitably. <laughs> That's the one. Yeah. You know, I think we may have mentioned him on a previous podcast, too. Yeah, I don't know if I said it at that time, but he's been revived as a character in the Gasoline Alley comic strip uh, with drawings that look just like the actor who played that role, who is better known on radio, actually, than on television. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the other ones that sound like what they mean, kerfuffle. Yeah, that's one that's got a very British ring to to my ear. Yes, and probably if you paid attention to the BBC, you would hear the word kerfuffle applied to all kinds of events, political events and so on. It means a, they have it as a synonym for brouhaha, any kind of uproar, commotion. Yeah, right. A hubbub. Oh, here's... Uh, Jiggery pokery is a Britishism. I don't think Americans hardly ever use it. One definition is hanky-panky. Schemes to maneuver things and and accomplish some end by not entirely open and honest means. could be skullduggery. And it got revived in the press not too long ago when Antonin Scalia uh, referred to an argument as jiggery pokery. pure and applesauce, which is an old American term for nonsense. So it got a a little brief blip of attention there, but I don't think jiggery-pokery has ever really caught on in America and not likely to. No, it sounds like something that uh, Scalia might have latched on to. (laughs) There's another one. We talked a couple minutes ago about the Fantods being related to Twain, and down in the L's here, they bring up Lilliputian, of course, that's from Jonathan Swift. Right, from Lilliput, the country of teeny-weeny people. So Lilliputian just means very small. That's one of those cases where I think it's used mainly by people wanting to show off that they're literate. You know, if you don't understand this, you're one of those ignoramuses who hasn't read Gulliver's Travels. <laughs> well, if you really wanted to throw people off, you could call something Brobdegnagian. <laughs> Yeah, which is the opposite. The right. opposite. But that would be uh, overly pretentious by at least half. Uh, a lot of these words, I sense a certain amount of, sure, it's good to know this vocabulary. It's not necessarily something that you want to actively try to use them more widely. But it's a very interesting list to go down and to see what people have suggested as words that they particularly like. What I'm noticing is that as I go down it, um, I've mentioned a few of them that sound like what they mean, and those are the ones that I enjoy, but it doesn't mean that I want to start using them more. 
There are ones that have sort of misleading sound to them, like meretricious. It sounds like it might mean meritorious, but it means falsely attractive. It superficially looks like it's nice, but it's really junk. So it's worthless. Yeah, yeah. Well, is there one that we can wrap it up on? Is there a word here that you're seeing that triggers a special response in you? Well, I actually wrote about one of them that's on this list, which is persnickety. And um, it means real fussy, fastidious, really very particular about how you do something. Or, you know, like I like really single source, uh, non-slave produced 72% dark chocolate <laughs> you could say i'm persnickety about my chocolate um and when i discussed this online i heard from scottish people saying the word is pernickety not persnickety <laughs> and evidently in england as well but it is scottish in origin it seems to have come in the early 19th century from something uh might have to do with another word pernicky but um, the late 19th century the Americans made it persnickety, which I I just like the sound of it. It's uh, got a fun feeling to it, even though I have Scottish ancestors. The, I think the Craigs will forgive me if I say persnickety. Well, I think here anyway, persnickety is the more common one, but I have heard that complaint. It's supposed to be pernickety. It's not persnickety. But I like having the S in there. Yeah, it's just one of those um, UK versus US distinctions. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a fun list. I encourage people to go to the link that we'll have with the podcast and uh, make up their own list of words that they would like to incorporate more into their vocabulary. But if they're like me, they're going to run down the list and say, yes, uh, it's interesting to know. And here's one I wasn't aware of how to pronounce it or wasn't aware of how it's spelled versus how it's pronounced. But they're not necessarily completely obscure. Some of them are. Um but it's an interesting list and a fun list for people who like words and language. And thanks for running down the list with me. Sure. All right. We'll talk to you later, Paul. All right. So long, Tom. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.